1: It's the start of another week on Political Rewind. Thank you all for uh, being with us. I have no expectations, and I imagine you all out there don't either, that somehow news of politics will slow down this week, and I imagine we'll see things accelerate as the week goes on. We have a lot to talk about on the show today, so I want to get right to introducing our panel, uh, Patricia Murphy, Uh, who is, of course, a political reporter and columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read her column, Political Insider, on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper. And, of course, she oversees the jolt at AJC.com, where you can get your daily dose of items about what's happening in uh, politics virtually in real time. Hi, Patricia. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing great, Bill. Thanks for having me. Patricia, we're getting down to it. There's only about oh. eight weeks until the election.
0: This is prime time, Bill Nugget. It's the best,
1: it's
0: the most <laughs> wonderful time of the
2: year. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, <laughs> I'd have to agree with that. Well, I'm really happy that you're part of this show as we move toward Election Day. Uh, we're joined by Audrey Haynes. Uh, Today, You know her, of course, as a professor of political science at the University of Georgia. Also, she's the director of the Applied Politics Program at UGA, which trains uh, students uh, in preparation for careers in politics. And I think, Audrey, you told me before the show, you have a very special guest coming to the Applied Politics Program uh, this week, I think.
3: We do. We do. We are in our... um uh, module that covers political communications, and we are going to be talking to the wonderful Patricia Murphy about, you know, um, the press and how people who work in politics should engage with the press, what are the best practices, and, and also learning about her career coming from having worked in politics and taking all that knowledge and then, you know, inserting that into what she does today so, so um, wonderfully.
1: Okay, that's wonderful that she's coming uh, to Athens. I I was out there with you a couple years ago, and I think it's a wonderful experience to get to talk to your students. Tammy Greer is back with us. She, of course, political science professor at Clark Atlanta University. Hey, Tammy, how's the new semester going so far?
4: Semester's going well. I'm still, though, ready for the eight weeks to to hurry and get here to have some real good fun. (laughs)
1: Uh, Tammy, what, do you, what are you teaching this semester? I always like to hear uh, what uh, political science professors are teaching.
4: Um, so two, uh, two uh, interesting courses. One is urban politics and policy, um, and I weave uh, rule spaces into that course. And I also am teaching a seminar in U.S. government and politics with the focus on social movements.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. Alan Abramowitz is back with us. He's an emeritus professor of political science at Emory University and uh, somebody we have turned to uh, for a very long time uh, to crunch data that helps us look at what could happen in uh, particularly national political races for, for Congress and uh, for president and presidential years, but also uh, races in the states. Uh, Alan, it's great to have you back with us. Great to be back with you let's get right to it um patricia murphy the, the abrupt announcement with no forewarning to a uh, city or state officials in georgia that wellstar was shutting down the atlanta medical center really was a shock to the system this is a high level trauma center it has uh, the capacity to have as many as i think 600 patients at a time, they're not at full capacity now, uh, but the the and, and they deal with indigent care as well. And without uh, AMC Atlanta Medical Center, the burden falls on Grady Hospital, which already struggles to keep up with the influx of patients they have to deal with. So, first, Patricia, just as a story about um, what's happening to hospitals today. We know it's been going on in rural Georgia, and now we see it right in the heart of the city. Um, what what does what this what does this say to you about where we stand with our medical facilities?
0: Well, it says to me a couple of things. First of all, this was obviously a decision about money. Um, the mayor had no idea that this was happening. This was not something done in conjunction with the community. Um, sort of, there was no advanced planning to. Uh, Prepare public officials to start to take steps to um, plan ahead for those patients. And even though um, AMC is not always full, their ER is typically quite full, and they really do tend to take um, a great deal of, um, of influx, uh, not just from their surrounding neighborhood in the Old Fourth Ward, obviously, also though from Emory, from Midtown Grady, and so all of these other neighboring hospitals are really scrambling to figure out what to do about this, um, but it really all comes down to money, and there is a reality in the state that um, in, that, well, all over the country, the cost of health care has been spiraling upward very, very quickly. Um, the rush to pay for it from the federal government through an expansion of Obamacare and expansion of Medicaid has not been matched at the state level. And so that has led to all sorts of finger pointing here at the state level during the governor's campaign, um, some scrambling to figure out what to do next, including from the governor's office. But it, it remains that these patients, are going to have a a huge hole in their community about where to go for emergency care and ongoing care when they simply can't afford to pay their bills.
1: You know, Alan, this is also, of course, a story about the way in which large corporations are increasingly taking over hospitals all over, certainly here in Georgia and across the country as well. Wellstar is an extraordinary—it's a nonprofit, we have to say that— But that doesn't mean it's not incredibly well-funded. I think Ariel Hart wrote a pretty good piece in the AJC this weekend pointing out that it's got a couple billion dollars in the bank. Uh, Their big uh, flagship facility is in Kennesaw, their Wellstar Hospital in Kennesaw. So there are questions about when the business becomes more important than service To the community, what happens. And we see that happening here at uh, AMC. I think that's exactly right. Um, You know, we have reporting now
5: that indicates that, you know, overall, WellStar is in a very strong financial position. Um, So uh, clearly, I think this decision to close down the the location uh, in Atlanta. Is based on the fact that they're losing a lot of money uh, taking care of a lot of indigent patients, um, which again raises a question of—I uh, mean, there's a lot of questions about this. Like, how could they do this with no, you know, li- without you know any discussions going on with the state and city leaders, you know? But but also, of course, it's, it's then provoked this debate um, between uh, Abrams, the Abrams camp, and the Kemp about whether Medicaid expansion, if Georgia had expanded Medicaid, you know, uh, could that have prevented this from happening? The, uh, you know, the the executives or board of Wellstar are saying no, um, but I'm not sure we can necessarily take their word for it there. Um, They don't want to embarrass the governor, I think. Um, Georgia, according to what I've read, is leaving well over $2 billion a year, uh, you know, on the table by not expanding Medicaid. And it's hard to believe that that would not have had some uh, bearing on, on this or made perhaps provided uh, a, a way to, uh, to keep this hospital open. As we've seen in, you know, in so many other – in the rural parts of the state where so many hospitals have had to close.
1: and Tammy, that does bring us right into the campaign for governor. This story has hit uh, both camps hard. Uh, On Friday, uh, Stacey Abrams had a news conference, a virtual news conference, with former Atlanta Mayor Shirley Franklin, who was deeply involved in the effort to save Grady Hospital uh, when it ran into uh, tremendous fiscal uh, problems a number of years ago. Um, And here's what Abrams said. This is a solvable problem but we cannot solve it with the person who created the problem, speaking about Kemp. We all know that half of Georgia's population lives in Metro Atlanta, and if this hospital closes, when this hospital closes, the people of Georgia are going to once again lose opportunity for healthcare, opportunity for jobs, and opportunity for survival, and of course, once again suggested that full expansion of Medicaid, which is something she ran on in 2018, and it's running out again this year, uh, she believes, despite what Wellstar says, would have helped this issue.
4: Right. And um, so if you had $2 billion left on the table um, for the past, um, you know, 10 years or so, um, without the expansion of Medicaid, would that have made a difference? Um, the The governor currently is or someone in the governor's office is discussing using federal COVID money in order to uh, infuse into Grady to help Grady out. At the same time, um, that's a short-term solution to a long-term issue. Um, Not only that, I find it interesting that the governor continues to use federal money from uh, COVID relief. Uh, where other Republicans are complaining in political ads about um, using COVID money inside of the state. Um, I also find it fascinating that there are um, conversations that that water down the issue of um, AMC as well as Grady uh, boiling it down to gunshot wounds. And I think that that's very disrespectful of the totality of uh, medical challenges that people are having and that those two medical centers um, have have uh, helped folks out who have been lifelighted to AMC or to Grady in order to receive medical care. So it's a very very interesting conversation and it still, I think, goes to how rural areas and urban areas are similar. There's just a, a language barrier where both of us, um, both spaces, you know, are having challenges when it comes to um, to the med- to medical um, cha- to medical institutions and the closing of this major hospital inside of the city of Atlanta. Um, kind of correlates with closing of hospitals um, in ur- in rural areas across the state as well.
1: Tammy, I'm glad you point out that it would be uh, uh, awfully narrow to focus on the notion that this is about gunshot victims at, at high at high level emergency facilities, um, but because it's far more than that. It is also certainly true that a good percentage of indigent care patients who would come to AMC and to uh, Grady are people of color, minorities.
4: Right. And and again, it, it that goes with the makeup of, you know, the city, the makeup of Metro Atlanta. Um, so you would you know, that kind of it matches to have, you know, a high number of patients with. Um, and we know that the inside of the city of Atlanta, the average black family makes, you know, less than thirty five thousand compared to the average of white families of about one hundred and twenty. So obviously you would have, you know, that type of disparity um, when it comes to patients um, who are indigent, who receive care at those two institutions.
1: Audrey, I want to bring you in. If you don't mind, let me add one element to this. Um, the governor's office, um, I think it's interesting um, because it, it goes to what it means to be an incumbent in a race like this. The governor's office put out a statement saying that Kemp uh, has been meeting with healthcare executives, elected officials, and community advocates to, and here's the quote from their uh, a statement about this, collectively put together a long-term uh, plan. We're encouraged by these discussions and we'll continue to do everything we can to ensure Georgians continue to have access to care, said one of his spokespeople. Uh, that's about incumbency and acting as if you are moving forward, you're gathering people together to figure all this out. Audrey? You're muted, Audrey.
3: I already gave my excuse that I was grading very late into the evening, mm. last night, into the morning. Um, but, you know, I would argue that if the incumbent didn't say that, then they they weren't saying what they should be saying. And the recognition that this is a real problem. I, I spent some time last night looking at Wellstar's financial reports. And let me tell you. I mean, a big part of um, what you see are salaries. Salaries are huge. And, you know, that is a problem in the, in the medical area as well as the cost of a lot of the, um, the processes and machines and things that they use. It's a real problem. And everyone on the panel has already highlighted all of the dimensions of this problem. But at the end of the day, the people that we elect to represent us in the state have to understand that they have to serve their their citizens. And there are people of all colors and all backgrounds who are not being served right now because the access to hospital care is limited. Now, it is true that particular groups are affected even more so, and that's an important part of the issue and understanding why that happens. But I would like to see them really come together and try and figure out how to solve this because our healthcare system with Piedmont and Wellstar. I mean, they really have become somewhat of a monopoly, and you can see that even though they are, you know, they benefit from their nonprofit status. It's not as though they they look like a lot of nonprofits do, where they're serving communities and 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 doing so um, by not being worried about a profit. So there's a real uh, clash there. And so I'm hoping that some of the people who work in the governor's office and in the um, mayor's office and throughout the state are going to come together and recognize this and maybe collaborate for once.
1: Patricia, I mean,
5: uh, Alan. Well, I'm not too optimistic about that. (laughs) Uh, And and the reason I say that, unfortunately, I I mean, that would be great if that were to happen. But um, I think that this comes down to two things. Politics and then ideology. There's a fundamental ideological divide here between Democrats and Republicans over the role of the federal government in providing health care and funding health care. And that's why Georgia is one of, I think, about 12 states that has not expanded Medicaid and, again, leaving well over $2 billion a year, from what I understand, on the table simply because no Republican governor or le- legislative leader in this state can afford to come right out and say, yeah, we need to expand Medicaid and get this, take this money and use it to solve all these, these problems. Um, you know, because that, that would be a- acknowledging that you've been, you know, do it, you haven't, you've failed, um, uh, you know, to act. Uh, uh, for so for all these years um, and again it, it comes it boils down to politics and ideology.
1: So uh, Patricia just to finish this off talking about the politics of it mm-hmm. you know it, it you, you can certainly correct me if you think I'm wrong but there's an interesting way in which the refusal to expand Medicaid uh, the governor's insistence on these health care waivers uh, now um, that uh, preempt the expansion of Medicaid by having a limited expansion tied to a work requirement, his desire to take Georgia off the ACA exchange. All of this seems to be kind of a remnant of the fight that Republicans had for years over the Affordable Care Act. It's just the lingering results of what Alan is really talking about, an ideological dispute, but also a highly partisan dispute about The Affordable Care Act in some ways, yes?
0: Oh, I would say it's not a remnant. It is an ongoing (laughs) battle over the Affordable Mm -hmm. Care Act. It was a major platform in the Affordable Care Act to give states this option to expand Medicaid with um, an at least 90% federal underwriting that does put states on the hook for about 10% of those bills. Um, It also just really comes down to a question of financial priorities. The state of Georgia has had huge surpluses um, for the last several years to the point that there have been multiple rounds of tax refunds. We just had our largest uh, state income tax cut in history that the governor signed Uh, cutting taxes, doing tax refunds. That's been just sort of like a constant, um, a constant go to for Republicans. That's how you prove you're a good Republican. I cut taxes. I shrink the size of government. Um, However, there is just this glaring reality on the ground that there is going to be a huge hole in this community and people not getting the healthcare they need because they simply can't physically get to Grady unless there's a there's an ambulance coming to get them. Um, They don't know how to find new doctors. Uh, There is there. It's one of two level one trauma centers in the city. How do you go from two to one without feeling that very deeply? Um, So the governor, I do think they're looking for a solution, at this moment because it is a stain on the governor's record um i saw him on friday he said that they're deep in talks for how to somehow get a major cash infusion and a long-term solution for grady um i don't really see how grady can absorb all of this grady already yeah. is that capacity um so i don't know what that solution is going to look like the governor wants to have a solution to present to voters before November to say, yes, this is a problem. Look, here's the solution. Um, I don't know what that looks like,
1: though. Um, Thank you all for that conversation. I want to move on to another story that was in the headlines this past week, uh, Patricia, and see, I I mean, first of all, just the tragedy of it is worth our commenting on. As we know, uh, late last week, two Cobb County deputies, uh, Randall Koleski, and uh, Marshal Samuel Irvin were ambushed as they attempted to serve a warrant on a house in Cobb County. They were both shot dead. Kolesky, 42 years old, Irvin, 38. Funeral services were just announced this morning uh, for both of these men. They'll be held on Wednesday. Um, and, and Patricia, it, I mean, it, it's just devastating to think about these two men having been killed this way. But um, and I wonder to what extent we, t- I don't know what kind of weapons were used in these shootings. I'm not sure it matters, but it certainly speaks to the proliferation of guns in Georgia. And, and I just wonder to the extent that guns are really an issue in this campaign that has, is making an impact or even being talked about all that much. Patricia, you're out there. I'm not. So you can tell me what you're hearing.
0: Yeah. So Democrats are talking about guns. Uh, Republicans are talking about crime. And um, these are two very different messages that voters are getting. I think voters are worried about both. Many voters are worried about both. And those are going to be the really important voters um, to go and make their voices heard. Because we know where the Democrats are on, um, on the gun safety issue. We know where the Republicans are. Um, officially, but there is this block of voters who I think are worried about both. Crime is a problem, uh, particularly gang violence is a problem. Gun violence is a problem all across the state. It's not just the city of Atlanta issue. The, these two killings happened in Cobb County. Um, Savannah is struggling. Columbus is struggling. Macon is struggling. Um, this is not localized to atlanta but the conversations between the two parties feel very very far apart um Mm. and then you just cannot imagine for um these two police officers um to be doing this job and to have just absolutely no protection from what they faced um it's just such a tragedy it's such a hard job it doesn't pay a lot and this is um you know this is the reality they face every day
1: tammy
4: yeah, I um, having worked um, in uh, law enforcement and having had family work in law enforcement, it's very challenging because um, uh, to you know to do a job that, as Patricia said, it you know it, it's not the salary that you know um, a medical center executive makes. Um, you know, at some at some point, it's challenging to live in certain communities. Um, that we that law enforcement is supposed to patrol. And, um, you know, there is a balance here where um, the pr- proliferation of guns everywhere as if the first part of the Second Amendment does not exist and only after the comma mm-hmm. that we pay attention to. Um, and then the endangerment that it puts not only the community in, also law enforcement in, um, when law enforcement just wants to do their job. Um, and, and it's very interesting to me as to how communities can balance the two. Um, yet and still, some communities um, are viewed dangerous by, you know, if, if they decide to participate in um, concealed carry and such. Um, so I, I am very interested in how both uh, candidates and both political parties attempt to talk to the folks in the middle um, about crime and safety um, uh, while attempting to, to understand the complexity of it from a community standpoint as well as law enforcement without, um, even though I know that there's gonna be a pandering to the end, um, th- there's a lot in the middle that I don't know if, if we actually have time to, in, in the will, to have a challenging conversation um, about the complexity of the situation.
0: Yeah, Bill, I was covering a hearing earlier this year um, where uh, Republicans had called the series of hearings, calling police board to say, um, you know, Republicans are fighting crime in Atlanta. And so they um, a question came from a Republican lawmaker to the deputy chief of police in Atlanta, what do you need from us? And uh, the deputy chief said, well, one of the things is that a lot of these guns that we have to deal with are being stolen out of people's cars. We need to find a way to have guns not stolen out of people's cars. A gun lock in a car would go a long way to solving that problem. And the response from the Republican lawmaker was, well, we're not going to do that. So what else do you need?
1: Hmm. Alan, before we have to get a break, what, I want to address something that Patricia talked about, and I wonder how it how it equalizes uh, uh, the two different issues. Republicans are focusing on uh, crime and the explosion of crime in many communities around the state, and and Democrats, as Patricia points out, are saying, well, the proliferation of guns doesn't really help that. Obviously, it could make things worse. And I wonder how those kind of uh, uh, erase one another as issues in uh, the campaign between Democrats and Republicans. So this is
5: one another issue uh, where, you know, it fundamentally comes down to politics and ideology, um, and there's this big ideological divide right now between the two parties over gun regulation. It was kind of remarkable that Congress did pass the first significant gun legislation in many years, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, but that was a, you know, pretty weak uh, you know, it, it was significant, but uh, it's, you know, it doesn't go very far. Um, the fact is that Georgia ha- has some of the most lax gun regulations of any state in the country. And we know, and here I'll, I'll uh, jump in with my, as, as, you, as your number crunching consultant, there is a
2: pretty
5: <laughs> strong correlation between A, gun regulations at the state level, B, the availability of guns, meaning the percentage of uh, people who have guns in a, in a state, and see gun violence. Those things all go together. LAX regulation is correlated with the proliferation of guns, which in turn is correlated uh, with uh, gun violence. And states that have stricter gun regulations and fewer guns in circulation have far lower levels of gun violence than we have here in Georgia. We have some of the highest rates of gun violence in the country, Um, and that's a big part of the crime problem, obviously. It's not the whole problem, but it's a
1: big part of it. Got to get to the first break of the show. We've got a lot more to talk about on this edition of Political Rewind, back in a moment.
2: Thanks
0: for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today.
1: Welcome back to Political Rewind. Tammy Greer, Audrey Haynes, Alan Abramowitz, and Patricia Murphy join us for this edition of the show. I just want to make one uh, reference to the fact that, as you all know out there, of course, yesterday was the 21st anniversary of um, of, 9-11, a day that not only shocked us all as we watched it unfold on live television, but which changed this country and in many ways changed Uh, the world and I don't know about you but I found it very moving to uh, watch some of the uh, tributes that went out uh, yesterday and and I think you know President Biden went to the Pentagon and um, he said he said something about being a nation based on principles that we're the most unique nation in the world we are created with the idea that everyone is created equal and should be treated equally throughout their lives. We don't always live up to it, he said, but we've never walked away from us uh, from it. It's not enough to stand up for democracy once a year or every now and then. It's something we have to do every single day. And of course, to some extent, that echoed the speech he gave last week, for which he got some criticism, that he believes that Trump Republicans are trying to undermine our democracy uh, but at the same time, um, I think his tribute to those who were lost in 9-11 is, is if you haven't watched that, you, you go to it online, because I think it, it speaks to all of our hopes that um, we will never have to live through a day like that again. Um, let's move on. Um, Patricia, I'll start with you on this. I, I want to talk just a little bit today. We, we discussed it on the show on Friday, but, but I think this panel needs to look at it as well. Um, because we've got this new campaign unfolding, this new messaging unfolding in the Herschel Walker campaign, um, in which uh, the Walker campaign essentially says that Raphael Warnock, an African American minister of one of the most iconic African American churches in the country, Ebenezer Baptist Church, is attempting to divide us by race, um, and 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 that. In a sense, it is a racist approach to the problems that face this country. Let's listen to the audio from the spot that the Walker campaign released last week. You're going to hear first Stacey Abrams talk about race, then Kamala Harris, the vice president, then a very quick piece of sound from uh, President Biden, and finally uh, you'll hear uh, Raphael Warnock and then uh, Walker responding.
0: I do absolutely agree that it's racist. It is a redux of Jim Crow in a suit and tie.
4: America has a long history of systemic racism.
5: You ain't black. America has a pre-existing condition. It's called racism.
4: Senator Warnock believes America is a bad country full of racist people. I believe we're a great country full of generous people. Warnock wants to divide us. I want to bring us together. I'm Herschel Walker. I approve this message.
1: Uh, Patricia, I said on the show Friday that when I first saw this commercial, I honestly didn't quite know what to make of it. You have two black men running against each other for the United States Senate, a remarkable thing in the South. And yet uh, here's a commercial and a message. Nikki Haley talked about it when she appeared for Walker on Friday that does use race uh, to divide us.
0: Yeah. And so I think it's important also to recognize this is a different uh, to Raphael Warnock than Republicans had earlier this year. There seemed to be an agreement that demonizing Raphael Warnock was not going to be effective. Uh, Kelly Leffler tried to do that, failed catastrophically when she kept calling him liberal, radical liberal Raphael Warnock. It just didn't land. And so um, earlier this year, uh, Republicans were running an ad that said Hershey, uh, uh, Raphael Warnock has an inspiring story, but it's his record in the Senate that's a problem. So now you fast forward to this, um, and uh, this is happening as Republicans are seeing in their own polling that gas prices are not as effective to move voters, that inflation has tempered down just a bit. This is a much more aggressive approach to Raphael Warnock, um, but it really does mirror what Herschel Walker says in his own stump speeches. He is out there, and he says to an audience of mostly white people directly, you are not racist don't let anybody tell you that you're racist. You're here for me. I'm black. How can you be racist? That is incredibly well-received in that audience among people who um, tell me they say they feel like they've been told that they should feel guilty for feeling white. There's a national conversation that makes them feel bad about themselves. Um, so that is the, that's the, that's sort of the, the emotion going on inside these Republican audiences it also does not track what, what Raphael Warnock is saying. This is not what he's saying on the campaign trail. He says we have to resist the demagogues of division, and we have to find a way to bring our entire country along together. So um, the clip from Warnock in that ad is from a time when he was uh, in the pulpit in the days after George Floyd was murdered. Um, it was a, a very specific conversation Uh, Racism does exist in this country. It doesn't mean the entire country is racist, but it's just a part of this incredibly emotional, uh, contentious, fiery, passionate uh, debate that's been going on in this country for a couple of years. And Republicans, I think, have decided that plugging into that and using it against Raphael Warnock is their best play.
1: Audrey, um, it also plays directly into the uh, Republicans in the legislature and the governor, who last session uh, passed a law banning the teaching of um, uh, so-called, you know, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Disruptive or, uh, uh, Patricia would help me with the word.
2: Divisive.
1: Divisive concepts, meaning Mm -hmm. you can't teach about races if white people are to blame for all the problems that black people have had. So it's all part of the same theme, Audrey.
3: Yes, and let me just make a couple points about that. Um, Patricia has really uh, done a great job explaining sort of the context of that. I'll look at it more from the political science side. Why do you run an ad in the first place? Usually you run an ad for um, a messaging reason and you're targeting particular groups. So number one, absolutely right, in the propaganda literature, you would use that kind of an ad, you know, uh, America is not racist, ergo Republicans are not racist. It's a welcoming thing, and, and therefore, you know, you, you should vote for me. I'm making you feel better. And as she said, a large part of his audience is white, and so that gives them, um, you know, a pass, makes them feel good about themselves and like him. But let me tell you, if you look at the polls, the places he needs to increase his um, voter support are, one, from black people because his voter support among blacks is very low. So, I mean, a target might be more black males. I think the last time I looked, it was somewhere around 9 or 10% compared to, you know, Raphael Warnock being in in the the high 80s. The other thing, too, is um, this notion. uh, It might be to, I don't know, uh, I I just lost my train of thought when I was looking at that, um, uh, the voters. Oh, the other area is white people. the, The number of white people that vote for him, it's 58%. I mean, there's still room for that to grow. So if he can use that message. So all I'm saying is that, you know, ads are meant to target particular things. And you don't spend money on an ad unless you think that it can do something for you. So maybe they're thinking, Other ads are not creating that kind of traction or pulling in voters. So we're going back to the thing that works for Herschel. You know, love me. I'm a I'm a uniter.
1: Tammy.
4: Um, Sure. So I I find it um, interesting. Uh, I think uh, it it appears to me that Walker is using these comments more as as a deflection against issues uh, rather than having an actual conversation about policy Um, or the underlying challenges with race and class. So um, anything that, you know, calls out or challenges um, or even just to uh, evoke emotion um, in some kind of ism uh, seems to be like the the common thing to do, especially when you are losing. Um, And him using points like bad country and stuff like that goes against um, um, uh, what... A particular community's view as patriotism, um, especially around the anniversary of 9-11. So I'm sure that that's another invocation um, for him to invoke uh, emotion. And then um, I think that, you know, do we talk uh, enough about um, that conservative media is actually feeding in some of these talking points over and over again to these particular communities about so-called CRT, about So called replacement theory and all of these other types of conspiracy theories. And then to have, you know, your, your black Republican candidate to come out and say, you know, they're, they're doing this to you. And it's like, who are the they? And then to pick random uh, sound bites from, um, from long speeches. Um, without context, as Patricia said, um, actually, you know, uh, creates, um, again, the emotion. And I also find it kind of Sarah Palin adjacent um, in, uh, of the 2008 campaign against Barack Obama. You know, to, again, it's the emotion um, going all the way down to, to, the, to the bottom of fear um, and to attempt to gain allies by saying, I'm on your side whereas, you know, folks are against you. Again, it's, I think it's that the notion of so-called patriotism in the scheme that they are putting patriotism in.
1: Ellen?
5: Oh, well, some, uh, this is a message that I think, as, as Patricia indicated, uh, will go over very well uh, among Republican-based voters. So part of the goal here, I think, is just to to energize those Republican-based voters and try to jack up the turnout uh, among those. It, this, this messaging is we're consistent with what we've you know, seen uh, coming from Republican leaders and spokesmen in, in, the, in their messaging for, for a number of years now. Um, I don't really think that what they're trying to do is make serious inroads among African-American voters. Um, you know, I think with Herschel Walker, uh, you know, an African-American candidate, um, There's some hope there that maybe, you know, they can increase their share of the African-American vote slightly. But um, it's not going to look very different than it has in in recent elections. Um, I think, you know, this is aimed at trying to prevent a slice of the white electorate from being pried away uh, from Walker, from the Republican candidate by someone like Warnock, who's been running as actually as a uniter. I mean, his messaging is, I'm a uniter. Look, I work with Republicans. Here are some of the things I've done, in addition to, of course, attacking, uh, you know, Walker, uh, on a variety of fronts. But um, so they're trying. Their messages say, no, he's not a uniter. He's just part, you know, of this woke mob um, that's trying to tell you that, you know, that that you're bad people, that you're racist people, and trying to undermine that the kind of messaging that's coming from the uh, from the Warnock camp.
1: Um- all right, I think we better get to our final break of the show right now. We're going to watch how this story unfold. I have to be, I want to be candid. I find this message and this in, introduction of, you know, who's more divisive when it comes to race, one of the most um, distressing kind of emotional uh, things that I've seen uh, in this campaign. I, we're already divided enough. And uh, for some reason, this strikes me in a, in a very troubling way. So we'll watch what happens next as the campaign for Senate moves forward. Uh, we'll get to our break. Back with more in a moment. Patricia Murphy, I really enjoyed the column that you wrote about the city of Pine Lake which really kind of is an overarching theme, was about here's what women can accomplish if you give them power. And being somebody who has a household of very strong women, my daughter Emma and my wife Janice, I understand what women are capable of. Talk to us about what happened in Pine Lake, a community that is run entirely by elected officials who are women.
0: Yeah, so I think, um, as you said, the first thing to know about Pine Lake, um, other than the fact that it's in DeKalb County, it's not in kind of some far-flung place far away from Atlanta, um, is that it has a female mayor and all-female city council, five members. It has a female police chief female um, municipal court judge, female clerk of court, everybody. It's all ladies. I joked it was like the Wonder Woman Island. You know, it's like all women. (laughs) Um, uh, Also, their representative to the General Assembly is – female, Representative Viola Davis, um, as well as State Senator Kim Jackson. Uh, Viola Davis went to the city council um, Mm -hmm. in Pine Lake and said, I have have an idea and I wanted to see what y'all think about it. And the result was a unanimous vote um, last week or the week before last. Um, to essentially decriminalize abortion in Pine Lake. Now, the, the literal effect of this is not huge because there's not an abortion provider in Pine Lake um, there are not that many people in Pine Lake. It's about 770 people. Um, but what this city has done is say we will use no city funds to, um, support this law, the state's new, um, you know, roughly six week abortion ban, but typically before, before Miss Women know they're pregnant. Um, they, and they have also instructed their, uh, police department, which has four officers, um, not to record any instances of, of abortion or miscarriage. Um, not to assist in any investigations if they're called about um, any questions as a part of an investigation from a different prosecutor. You can't help with that. We, they want no role, no part in enforcing this law. And so um, I thought it was fascinating. Other cities have taken steps similar to this, but to come from a very small city completely women-led women um, and unanimous, uh, to me, was really interesting. And it's a much more specific, aggressive resolution than some other cities have been able to pass as well.
1: Well, Audrey, there are clearly women who are uh, anti-abortion. We, we know that to be a fact. But this Pine Lake uh, decision uh, does help us understand how powerful an issue this is for a great many uh, women out there clearly, um, and we should also point out. Remember that Jen Jordan, running for attorney general, uh, said shortly after Roe that if she wins that office, she will not use her office to pursue people who violate uh, the state law restricting abortion to that heartbeat bill, six weeks, uh, essentially. But but it does say this is where many many women stand on this issue, and they're voters. You're, you're muted, Audrey.
4: But I'm
1: Go ahead. No, now you're muted again. Let me let me go to uh wait, Tammy wait, on I'm this okay. and w-
3: I- I'm All okay. Right. Sorry, I actually had something to say. So, <laughs> <I'm gonna> <laughs> I, I told Bill before the show started that I was like running on fumes today. So it is clearly apparent that I am a real human being and not a robot. But um, so let me just say, <laughs> Pi- Pine Lake is uh, the epitome of what we would consider to be kind of like resistance, and there is there is a bit of resistance to this uh, law here and in other places in the country after Roe v. Wade. And let me just argue that primarily the reason it has happened is because the conformity cost, this cost of going along with a law and a decision, is so counter to public opinion at this stage that there is so much of a disconnect between what has been decided and what the general public wants and is willing to accept. And I don't think it's just um, going to be Indicative of what we see in Pine Lake. I think a lot of Democrats are counting on the fact that there are plenty of women and men who are quietly contemplating their vote. And and they want to uh, message back to their government state um, uh, across the country that, you know, as in Gandalf, you
4: shall not pass. This shall not stand.
3: Tammy? I'm done.
4: I was not ready for the Lord of the Rings um, to come in, so I'm going to have to get you back <laughs> on that, <all> <laughs> um, and So I, I, I also find uh, Pine Lake very interesting. Um, and, and then I kind of sobered up when I realized that um, when the um, HB4, um, HB, 481 was passed, that um, 13 uh, women voted for that. Um, and I'm wondering, and I'm very curious, um, not only about those 13 women in the General Assembly who voted for it, um, but then you had executives like Kay Ivey in Alabama. The governor in Iowa at the time was a, was a woman. Um, and then, of course, Justice Amy Coming Barrett, Liz Cheney, even after the Dobbs decision, uh, talked about um, uh, talked about Dobbs in a favorable way. I am curious, specifically here in Georgia, um, if uh, there is some type of understanding of you know maybe from a theory standpoint, if this would have passed, you know, we would feel better from an ideology standpoint. At the same time, now it is um, it is an actionable item. Um, it is real. I'm I'm curious as to those 92 state representatives and um, those um, those folks in the those 34 people in the um, state senate, if they are still in office, how will their constituency uh, vote for them in the next eight weeks?
5: Well, I think there's no question that uh, the Dobbs decision. Um, at, and then followed by the referendum results in Kansas has uh, upended the 2022 campaign uh, around the country, um, particularly in the swing states you know, where the outcome is in doubt. I mean, Democrats uh, are, are running on this issue. Um, we're seeing that around the country. We're seeing that here in Georgia. Uh, one of the ads of Stacey Abrams' campaign is, is running repeatedly is attacking Brian Kemp for his, what they call his extremism uh, on this issue of abortion. So this is, and and all the polling we've seen, national polling and state polling shows that abortion now is one of the top issues um, in in the 2022 campaign. And yes, it divides men and women, but there's no question what we're seeing is that um, women are uh, now, uh, this was not always true, but women are more likely uh to, um, uh to oppose these sorts of restrictions uh, on abortion and uh this is a message that you know that running running on this is some way democrats think they can appeal to suburban uh swing voters uh particularly women uh in in uh the midterm election
1: all right um thank you for a terrific conversation uh today um we are really uh, just about out of time for today's political rewind. Uh, before we go, I want to give you a, a quick heads up. Um, Thursday night, uh, I'm going to be doing an event at the Atlanta Jewish Book Festival that I'm really looking forward to. And there's still uh, room if you were interested in being a part of it. Um, we're going to be talking with um, Vladimir Zelensky's former press secretary, who has now written a book about what it was like to work with Zelensky... And how she has watched his power grow from the time that he was a stand-up comic and actor to being a leader who the world now admires enormously. That's Thursday night, the Atlanta Jewish Book Festival. You can look at their website if you're interested in uh, coming. I'd love to see you all. Uh, out there for that event. All right, enough of that. Patricia Murphy, thank you. And thank you for that great column about Pine Lake, Tammy Greer, Alan Abramowitz, uh, Audrey Haynes. Get some rest, Audrey. You've been working very hard. We're back again with a brand new show tomorrow. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody.